1: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in British Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jess Clark, and I'm one of the channel co-hosts. Today, I'm delighted to speak with Dr. Samita Mukherjee, a senior lecturer in history at the University of Bristol, about her new book, Indian Suffragettes, Female Identities and Transnational Networks, published in 2018 by Oxford University Press. In her new book, Mukherjee highlights the centrality of Indian women in the fight for the vote in the first half of the 20th century. Taking up a geographic organization around global contact zones, the author skillfully guides readers through multiple sites of Indian suffragette networking, from Britain and its Commonwealth, to international locales in the US and Europe, to eastern locations like Burma, before concluding in India. This mapping of transnational connections foregrounds the truly global dimensions of the suffrage movement and the ways that Indian women's locality inform their calls for political equality. Mukherjee broadens our understandings of global histories of suffrage, expanding our focus beyond national borders, all while putting Indian women front and center in the struggle for the vote. Samita, welcome. Hi, Jess. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, So can we begin by um, you telling us a bit about yourself and how you came to this project?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, So uh, just a bit of background, I was born in London. Um, I did my PhD, my DPhil um, at the University of Oxford. My PhD was on Indians who studied in British universities in the early 20th century um, and I've always really been interested in issues of identity and especially how travel affects um your identity and your understanding of your place in the world. I think influenced a lot by my own experiences growing up, <coughs> excuse me as someone of um, Indian ethnicity in Britain and being very conscious, conscious, sorry of when I went on holiday, when I went to other places that my ethnicity and my nationality as British was often um, brought into question. So they're the kind of underpinning things that uh, have really interested me and um, underpin a lot of my research. Um, I'm also really interested in women's rights and um, women's history. Um, And so after the PhD, after uh, a postdoc project and various other um, teaching posts, I really wanted to write this book, which obviously I'll talk a
1: bit more about what the book does in a sec. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of those, um, you know, personal influences are definitely reflected in many of the themes of the book. So yeah, so turning to the book itself, um, I mean, there's lots to talk about, but you do some really wonderful things with um, geography and locality. And I think you use it in really productive ways to organize the text. So I wanna um, talk about that more specifically a little bit later, but to begin, I thought we'd talk about some of the the sites of Indian suffragettes activism. Um, so the book opens with considerations of their work in uh, Britain and the British empire in the early 20th century. So can you tell us a little bit more about this particular phase and its significance?
0: Yeah, sure. Um... I guess I should say that um, the research for this book really started with a chapter that I wrote that was published in 2011 in in an editor collection that I co-edited with my colleague Ruhana Ahmed Um, and in that chapter I wrote about um, a British woman called Sophia Juleep Singh who is of Indian ethnicity and who was involved in the British suffrage movement in the 1910s. Um, And then her connections with um, two Indian women, Haribai Tata and Mittan Tata, who were involved in the Indian um, suffrage movement. Um, And a lot of my early work was really about Indians in Britain and how Indians of Britain grappled with ideas of being imperial um, subjects, um, how they understood the empire, and how they became politicized um, through coming to Britain. So that's really what under that was kind of the starting point for, for a lot of this which is why that first chapter um, starts with Britain and the British Empire. I guess the other the key thing that so this whole book is about Indian women who were campaigning for the vote um, from the 1910s onwards until 1950 when universal adult suffrage is introduced in India. Um, And before 1947, India is part of the British Empire and so much of what is um, kind of politically enacted in India has to take place in Britain and a lot of political petitioners from India come to Britain in the 19th and 20th century to discuss political issues um, with with either British politicians or um, the British public. So, a lot of yeah, I guess a lot of the a lot of work about Indian mobile subjects in the nineteenth and twentieth century has concentrated on male subjects who've been involved in broader political discussions around nationalism um, and anti-colonialism and uh, democracy and, and so forth. And really, what I'm I'm trying to do in this book is to show. On a, on a very basic level, that Indian women were also involved in political, scu- political discussions around empire, around citizenship and subjected, um, about what it means to be a British subject, what it means to eventually become an Indian national, um, and how this is all tied into their own involvement in and discussions around the franchise and specifically um, the women's vote. So in that first chapter, I'd look at both how um, Sophia Dilip Singh and other Indians who were living in Britain in the 1910s were initially involved in the British suffrage movement um, up until 1918, when some women in Britain are given the, the right to vote. But then also how in the 1910s in particular, there are Indian women coming to Britain and really putting the agenda of the Indian women's franchise on the map of both British politics and British imperial politics and Indian politics more generally.
1: I think um, also one of the things that um, really comes to the fore in the text are the ways that you, um, you know, in terms of empire, it's not just a focus on um, um, activities in the metropole, of course. Um, And by the second chapter, you've moved out to um, Commonwealth networks. talking about what you term colonial feminism and especially, and I think really significantly talking about it in terms of um, Australia and New Zealand. Um, and I think that, as you know, this is something that hasn't necessarily been touched on too much. Um, so shifting gears a little bit to the broadening out of the book, can you talk a little bit about how these networks came about and what this did in terms of um uh, Indian suffragette activity.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, and again, just to kind of give a bit of background of, of why I, I do this. Um, as I said, a lot of my early work was basically just about Indians in Britain and um, Indians had come to Britain and returned to India and the effects of that migration or, or that travel um, on Indian politics. And I, I guess I became increasingly aware um, through reading and um reading other people's work and and understanding of the field more broadly, that we can't really think about imperial relations if we just focus on one one colony and the metropole and that Indians weren't just thinking about empire as just their relationship with Britain, but were conscious of the other colonies, of the dominions um, and uh, I guess the hierarchies of race and position within the empire Um, and also um, the commonalities that they had um, with other subjects um, within the British Empire. So what's really fascinating is that Indian women were also really aware of of the rest of the empire and were able to utilise, as as you said, I I described as the kind of colonial feminist links, especially with the white dominions in Australia New Zealand um, and Canada to uh, put forward their campaigns around the vote and really to learn from other women who have who were both subject subject citizens, I guess, um, of the Empire. Um, what's really interesting as well when we think about suffrage and suffrage histories is that Australia and New Zealand had enfranchised women before Britain, which is so fascinating if you think about the Empire. Um, and and all the other kind of political relationships. So they were really the the kind of the role models that people who were working in and around suffrage really looked to, um, and especially New Zealand, which is, um enfranchised women in 1893, but also at that time enfranchised all women, including Maori women, um, unlike Australia, which. Um, has racial exclusions and when they um, enfranchised women in 1902. So um, in terms of the networks and how Indian women are able to engage with those networks, there are, kind of, there are two ways in which they do this. They are able, some Indian women are traveling to other parts of the empire or corresponding to these other parts of the empire um, and to the women who are working around women's work and rights. Um, There they are, especially, And what I'm really interested in is is how they they think about the Indian diaspora in these areas as well. So there are a few hundred Indians who live in Australia um, and Canada at this time. There are more Indians who live in South Africa um, and Kenya. And really when these Indian women are thinking about the vote and uh, the franchise, they're not just thinking about the franchise for Indians in India, but also the franchise for the Indian diaspora in these other parts of the empire. Um, and also those Australian and New Zealand feminists who had been involved and, and won the franchise um, early on in the in the late 19th and early 20th century were very intimately involved with British networks of suffrage. Um, so a lot of the... Um, the, the the networks that Indian women had with women from the White Dominions in the early 20th century came through a uh, meeting in London um, as a, a place where people from around the empire came together to discuss political issues and especially um, the suffrage.
1: And then eventually... Um... You move into a focus on the development of um, what you term Asian, Oriental, and Eastern networks, um, with a kind of more dedicated geographic focus on that area. So, um, can you talk a little bit about the development of suffragette networks there and perhaps um, how that was similar to, but also differed from, those happening in an imperial context?
0: Yeah um, so before I, I look at the Asian networks I actually look at the international networks so should I discuss? Oh yes um, please go ahead. Yes. Yeah <laughs> um, so I, I, I have a, a bit of a trajectory in the book I look at first of all this, this um, traditional uh, idea of, of empire and, and a kind of horizontal relationship between Britain and India and how Indian women are using imperial networks um, because they have to um, to, f- to further their campaigns. Um, they are often, um, I guess, subservient to the British um, women who are involved in women's rights and suffrage, um, suffrage campaigns. So that's kind of the first chapter and how these Indian women are um, are projecting themselves as imperial subjects and citizens and and using their imperial subjecthood to start those early campaigns for the votes in India. And then in the next chapter, as I just discussed, they are using wider imperial networks. They are learning from Australia and New Zealand um, and they're thinking about the Indian diaspora in, in other parts of the empire. And then in my third chapter, I look at how they are thinking much more internationally and especially focusing um, when, I, when I say internationally in this context, they are engaging with um, European, continental Europe, um, European and American networks of women um, and women's organisations. Um, and there are some key um, international women's organisations they engage with, including the International Women's Suffrage Alliance, Um, which was dominated by European and American women. Um, They also engaged with the National Women's Party um, in America. Um, And in in that chapter, what I'm really trying to show is that having, as they increasingly try to um, separate themselves or distance, distance themselves Um, from the overbearing attitude of the British imperial feminists that they'd first engaged with um, and as they perhaps see some of the limitations of just using um, their colonial feminist networks, that they um, are increasingly aware that um, suffrage is a a global, international issue um, and as these Indian women are also increasingly engaged with Thinking about as they have to do when they're thinking about suffrage and the franchise and what it means to be someone who has a democratic right as a system um, in their country. They're thinking about then India as a nation um, and India's place in the world internationally, um, separate to just um, empire. So we see in this, in that chapter, how. They are, yeah, they're just thinking internationally. They are engaging with women around the world, um, hoping and trying to engage on a more egalitarian basis with women around the world, and yet still facing certain issues of, I wouldn't say discrimination is the right word, but um, objectification um, and feelings of, of exotic exoticization um, if I can use that word which is something that they've, they've been facing um, uh, beforehand with their interactions with women in Britain and around the Empire
1: and so um you raised the issue of as you say objectification and exoticization um, a discussion which extends into um, the following chapter when you do focus on um, Eastern networks, um, and the ways in which these operated, but were also, you know, rejected and worked against in this context. Um, so can you speak a little bit about these um, Eastern networks and what they looked like? Yeah. Um, so what we see is that
0: um, in the interwar period, international, international networks and organisations had become really prominent, especially with the... Um, foundation of the League of Nations but we also see a turn to or yeah a a turn I guess to regional politics and regional organizations and associations um, which women are also getting involved in so we see um, from the late 1920s onwards that Indian women are turning to very broadly Eastern or Asian networks. Um, and at that time um, they were very broad. They extended from the Middle East um, across to um, and included uh, Egypt and, and Turkey um, and extended to what we would now classify as the Asian um, continent. Um, so what's interesting here is that um, perhaps this is a, it's, it's, it's kind of a turn away from those international or imperial networks because they, they felt that they were being objectified or exoticized and not necessarily being heard. They they often, they so I'd say um, from 1921, some Indian women were getting the vote and by 1935, um most states in India had enfranchised women. Um, but in reality, this meant that very few women had the vote because they were only enfranchised if they had property um, qualifications. Um, so there was this weird mix of these Indian women being very proud of the fact that they had won the vote, or some Indian women had won the vote by 1921, but also aware that they still had a really long way to go to enfranchise the whole population um, and they really wanted to enfranchise all women. Um, and I guess they, they felt they weren't um, being heard or being recognised in some of those international networks. Um, so, yes, yeah, so they, they turned to these Asian networks um, or these Eastern networks. But what I argue is that um, it wasn't such a straightforward process here. Um, and we see two things um Emerging, or not so emerging, but becoming more prominent. One is that Indian women are quite happy to self orientalize themselves, selves, um, and actually, despite chafing at the exoticization that other women had um, imposed upon them, they themselves are often quite, were often quite happy to utilize um, stereotypes about the Indian women um for their own gain um so stereotypes of indian women as being family orientated of being spiritual um and domestic these were all things that they really played up on and you kind of see they, they play up on these even in these more regional um asian or eastern networks where they would say that we that we us asians us orientals even mm-hmm. us eastern women um have a have a common affinity around being these domestic family-orientated um, Asian women, rather than perhaps, as one might kind of hope of them, to emphasise um, the kind of modern feminist credentials around suffrage um, that they are engaging it with. Um, and we also see, and this is something I also discuss um, in my second chapter around the Commonwealth and, and colonial networks, is that Indian women themselves were often guilty of um, imposing hierarchies um, and um, fashioning themselves on as, as above other women? Um, so we see this um, in the in the colonial networks where they are happy to assert superiority over um, Aboriginal women in Australia or black Kenyans and black Africans in Kenya. So in Kenya, for example, they're very happy that Indian women, or they don't really object when Indian women get the vote in 1924, but black African women don't get the vote. And then in Chapter 4, when I discuss these Asian networks, again, you kind of see the the ways in which Indian women are quite keen to assert their superiority over some of their neighbours. They assert their superiority over, um, well, in, in, to some extent over their Burmese um, and Sri Lankan neighbours. Um, they dominate a lot of the these Asian or Eastern organisations around suffrage and women's rights. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess just overall what I'm, I, I try to do in this book is um, – I'm I'm trying to give agency to these Indian women. I'm trying to show the ways in which Indian women were mobile and engaging with really complex discussions around feminism and suffrage and citizenship. But I'm also um, not, I haven't uh, gone out to write a hagiographical, laudatory account of these women either. And um, I'm really keen to also show that they themselves were often complicit in um using and encouraging um racial or imperial um hierarchies in their work yeah
1: and i think that's something that certainly comes across that the kind of the way that um, structures of power work in these dynamic networks, um, yeah, that certainly certainly comes across. So, in terms of the of the book organization, the chapters move outwards in a lot of ways to encompass you know different transnational networks and international networks, and then in a really interesting and I think a really effective move, the final chapter turns to um, India itself to to think about the way that. Um, feminist struggles intersected with nationalist and anti-imperialist struggles as well. So can you talk about this final turn um, to India itself and what this looks like?
0: Yeah, um, so I guess what, what I I see and I chart is that having um, really tried to engage with other women around the world and learning from other women around other women around the world and teaching other women around the world about what they were doing around suffrage. Um, ultimately, and you know, it goes back to that very first uh, chapter around empire. Um, ultimately, India and Indian women are subject to the British Empire and the British Crown, and it's. I guess what's so weird about uh, all their suffrage campaigns is that they are campaigning to have a vote. In a in a legislative assembly, where so it's, they're kind of trying to campaign for democratic rights, even though they are parts of an empire and they are subject to the empire. So lots of people like so generally people who aren't aware of this history are have when I've kind of talked about this work have been surprised that any women were even campaigning for the vote um, before 1947 because they felt how can you campaign for the vote um, when you're um, subject to the empire and so yes but they are um so what's ultimately what these indian women realize is that although they can get limited democratic rights under the empire and as said by 1935 some women um are enfranchised the only real way in which they can get full adult franchise and also to have um uh, a vote and a a, a political voice that can enact change is if India becomes free of the empire and if India gains independence. So I I kind of had to, um, at the end, turn um, to look at India itself and and how these suffrage debates are so interlinked um, with nationalist um, debates too. So although in... The book as a whole and the research that I did is is much more interested in what women were doing outside of India and about these transnational networks and and how they think about their locality um, and their identities outside of India. Um, I have yeah, I, so I, I I turn to India at the end and and think about how. Um, so the, the, the kind of the last few decades of the suffrage movement in India are, are do become um very internal and internalized. But I've not to say that it's it's just about India. Um so in that last chapter, which is um it covers the 1930s and, and 40s, um Indian women are still and almost have to revert back to Britain again as their place of Of focus for a lot of um, their campaigns and their debates and and their petitioning and and organisation and everything else. So it's almost also a kind of bookend to that first chapter where they are returning to Britain, they are going, they're involved in the, the round table conferences and other parliamentary conferences which are being held in London to discuss the constitutional future of India. Um, and whereas in the 1910s, they when they'd come to Britain, they had really wanted uh, the help of British feminists and, um, and really worked alongside, um, or not necessarily alongside, but worked under British women um, in the 1930s and 40s. Although they are coming to Britain and they still have really strong networks with British women's groups, um and and british allies they are trying to assert themselves much more both in britain and in india as independent women who want to really take control and helm of their campaign of and of their debates um, there, so for example in this chapter we see how there are british women who are encouraging indian women to think about suffrage in stages um, and that so having enfranchised women who have some property rights to, they are arguing that Indian women should the franchise should be increased slowly so that just the wives or widows of Indian men who have the vote could be enfranchised next or just uh, women who pass um, certain liter- literary quali- literacy sorry, qualifications should have the vote, uh, and other suggestions are given about a, a kind of a stage-by-stage, stage, slowly, slowly um, process, whereas the majority of Indian women, not all of them, but the majority of Indian women who are involved in the suffrage campaigns by this stage, by the late 30s, or early 30s even, are really pushing for a, a full adult franchise for all women women um, and a kind of an immediate um, for adults um, franchise. And so we we see the ways in which Indian women are fashioning the campaigns very much to ally themselves, I guess, with what's going on in the the nationalist um, realm around rejecting perhaps some of the help from both British and, and other allies around the world.
1: Um, so over the course of the book, you note, um, you often note the ways that um, we have to avoid or we should um, avoid thinking of suffragette as a single homogenous category. And um, you do a lot of really effective work to show the multiple um factions and groups working towards um, a shared goal but with very different interests and from very different positions of power. So can you talk a little bit about the writing of this book where you highlight the importance of a number of um, you know singular women and their activities but you also talk about broader groups. So can you talk about perhaps the challenges of that um, and how you navigated that?
0: yeah um yeah it was hard <laughs>
1: um i
0: guess <laughs> although so i think when i when i think about it now when i look at it and, and and when i talk about it although i do discuss lots of individual women and the suffrage movement was dominated by certain individual women at, at different stages and, and you know that in, in a real sense there's only a handful of indian women who are the ones who are moving around the world or corresponding and engaging with these international or imperial networks, especially because my book is, doesn't really concentrate on the domestic grassroots campaigns that um, take place in India. So as much as it's it's based on those individual women, I'm not really interested in those individual women as, as biography or um, – as as yeah, or as, as single women, I'm much more interested in uh, the broader questions around um, locality and space, and how suffrage is being understood, um, and, and I guess the the broader trajectory of those campaigns. So, um, I mean, the book was. Um, as all these, as all projects are, a long time in in come in kind of thinking about before writing, um, and researching, um, and I guess from a, a fairly early stage, especially because I um, in the early stage I talked to friends who are historical geographers, I really thought that I had I or I wanted to to divide and think about this work in terms of those different geographical spaces which we've discussed and, and in the ways which the book um, has been laid out and that that idea of that those geographical locations for something that was was there early on and um, influenced the way in which I went into the archives um, and, and planned all, all my research um, and everything else so yeah I guess you know, it goes back to the very first question I'm the book is really much more interested in and the, the subtitle of the book itself is it, it's interested in the female identities and so identity politics although that's not necessarily so fashionable today um, in the current political climate but I'm, I am still interested in identity politics um, and those transnational networks um, much more than um, what did um, Rajkumari, Rajkumari Amrit Kaur do on the 10th of December 1932, or what did Mita Antata do on the 11th of August 1990? I, I don't remember those details. Um, and of course those details are in, in the book, but to me they are less important than the broader um, theoretical things I'm trying to do.
1: Yeah, and I think that really comes to the fore in, where, in the ways that you foreground these spatial interactions and what you term you know your contact zones you could see the ways that of course there are individuals um who are as you say are you know considered leaders at a particular moment but it's really much more about how they're moving through space and networking across groups so i mean that certainly comes to the fore okay thank um, you and i mean there is a, there's
0: an appendix which i included at the end because i was aware of perhaps that i didn't discuss these individuals very much or well, i do but maybe people wanting to know more about them. So I do have brief biographies of some of the key individuals um, as an appendix.
1: Um, so this question is somewhat related in, in terms of a focus on Um, individual actions, et cetera. But, you know, as many of our listeners know, this year is the centenary of the 1918 representation of the People Act. So that means that there's been considerable attention to the British context and British developments this year. Um, So in focusing on Indian suffragettes, um, you're making important revisions to its existing focus and histories of global suffrage movements. So, I mean, this is a bit of a big question, but I mean... How do you envision the future of the history of suffrage? Where do you see this going? Well, wow. <laughs> that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, so for me,
0: and uh, you know, I'm based in, in the UK and I've been involved in lots of activities around this centenary, um, which is around obviously around a, a British um, commemoration. I think what's I think there's there's two things, there's what I want and I think how the field still works. So I really, really, and there there are scholars before me who've been doing this, so I'm I'm by no means um, the first one at all. But I really want us, for for scholars who are working on, and and again, I wouldn't really describe myself as a suffrage historian, I would describe myself as, um, you know, the, the uh, I don't know a historian more broadly, um, but what I really want want to do wanted to do and, and want historians to do when they're thinking about suffrage is not to just focus on Britain or America as these spaces of suffrage activity, and I still feel just in general knowledge. In most part, in very many parts of the world, that when you talk, when you just say the word suffrage or suffragette or suffragist, people will, will automatically think of Britain and America and some of the key figures that have pervaded um, public consciousness, even beyond those two countries. Um, and yeah, I guess my mission here was to show that not only were in this, you know, it's not just about, it's not just that Indian women were involved in the suffrage campaigns, but that they were engaging with a very vibrant global movement um, around suffrage. Um, So, you know, nearly every single country in the world has had some form of a suffrage movement. And most of those suffrage movements have been connected to each other or to certain other international or regional or or larger organisations. There are very few suffrage movements that have just been um, localised. So, yeah, I guess I'm, you know, I was trying to build upon the work of women who've been looking at, or not women, sorry, historians who've been looking at women's movements in this, this kind of global um, purview. So I really hope that um, going forward, historians of suffrage, even if they are just concentrating on their their local um, country, are aware of the international connections that those suffrage movements inevitably had um, with other parts of the world. Um, and yet I still... I still feel that um, suffrage is, is again, you know, I say it's a word, it's, it's a term that seems to dominate um, histories that are written about um, Britain and America. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, 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 as I said, you know, I think this the book that I'm writing, although suffrage is really important, it's not just about suffrage, and these Indian women... Um, were not just, I focus, you know, the focus is, is just on what they did around suffrage. But these are Indian women and other women who are corresponding, involved in networks, involved in organisations and so forth around women's rights more broadly as well. Of course, the suffrage is something, giving women the vote has a, a knock-on effect and they understand that, will have a knock-on effect on other women's rights. But there are also while they are meeting in these spaces to discuss suffrage, they are also discussing other issues around um, education, violence against women and girls, um, and so many other issues. Um, so I, I think that for historians who are writing about suffrage, they need to always be conscious of, of how yeah, debates around suffrage or women and men who are sized themselves as suffragettes or suffragists or led suffrage organizations were had broader lives than just suffrage.
1: Excellent so um Samita we're almost out of time um, but before we go here at New Books Network we traditionally end our discussions by asking what you're working on next. Um, well I'm not working on anything
0: <laughs> at the moment and <laughs> the
1: book is just out so
0: I'm kind of recovering um from the whole process um, but just looking forward um my plans are to i mean the, the questions that i've been asking in this book are something that i will continue to ask um i don't think they'll be around suffrage again um i think that those issues around mobility identity uh, migration and space um are things that are gonna i think continue to interest me um i go forward
1: excellent well we will um keep an eye out for the book and for future projects so thank you again for joining us and um, thank you Jess, for having me on <laughs> and thank you to all our listeners until next time